Hi, I'm Burke, and due to the nature of this podcast, there might be depictions of graphic violence or harsh language, so listener discretion is advised. I know last episode we talked about entering spooky season, but it's officially October, so we're going to have the next three episodes, including this one, to be revolving around spooky monsters, or in this case, mythical creatures that you can put into your games. All the polls went to mythical creatures. Uh, don't worry, those who voted for Ethereal last minute, I have something cooked up for you as well this month. You might hear this in my voice, but I had a pretty long weekend, so just a disclaimer with this. It just was quite a bit of stuff going on this weekend, and I thought I had more time to prep for this episode than I did. Luckily enough, I got stuck in traffic on the way home. And while I was stuck in traffic, I kind of decided where I was going to go with this episode. See, the first year of Spooky Season, we covered vampires. Pretty much the entire month. And for the second year of Spooky Season, we covered ghosts and ghost-type entities. This year is going to be a little bit different because the votes were in and everybody wanted, well, not everybody. We did have a vast majority wanting mythical creatures. Now, don't worry for those who selected Ethereal. I got something cooked up for you sometime this month as a bonus episode. And you're probably like, Burke, a bonus episode? You've been saying you're going to do some bonus episodes, but you haven't had time. I'm actually going to record this bonus episode right after this one. Maybe even before I edit this one. That way I make sure it gets done. Sorry, let's get back on track. So for this year, we're covering mythical creatures. Now, the difficult part about finding these creatures for this episode were I had to distinguish between folklore, because that was one of the parameters on the poll, which you guys didn't want, and mythology. So I had a list of things that I kind of thought would work, but they don't actually work. For instance, kobolds are actually Germanic folklore, not mythology. And goblins actually come from a lot of different kinds of folklore, including some from Kentucky. Apparently, there's some folklore about goblins in Kentucky, but they don't actually show up in mythology. The bright side with the creatures I've selected today, you should actually know what all these creatures are just from me reading off the names. Or well, you should have at least have heard of some of them, if not all of them. I chose to not veer too crazy off into left field because I wanted to pick things that were easy for a low-level campaign, and even one of them kind of fits into like a mid-level campaign, but we'll get to that in a second. Well, I already had to amend my list because um, it turns out some of the things that snuck through were also folklore. This actually became a lot harder than I thought, and I kind of changed my mind on the direction for this episode. I was going to avoid doing the boss-type monsters this episode and just do them in the next couple, but what's the fun in that? I think everyone wants to listen to stuff about big, scary monsters, because that's what you want to put in your games, right? Everybody loves big, scary monsters. So let's do that. So for our first big, scary monster, let's talk about the Hydra. The origins of the Hydra come from Greek mythology. And if you're familiar with the labors of Heracles, also known as Hercules in Roman mythology, the Hydra should come up pretty fresh in your mind. To avoid a trigger warning on this episode, I'm going to not talk about why Hercules has to do these 12 labors to begin with, but one of his 12 labors, he has to fight this Hydra. And this Hydra is found in the swamps of Lerna, near the city of Argos. And in mythology, the Hydra was known for every head that was cut off, it would grow two more in its place. During the battle, Heracles discovers that he can carterize the stumps where the new heads would come out. And doing so would stop the Hydra from getting new heads and eventually help kill the Hydra. He also buried the immortal head underneath a big rock. 
The bright side with hydras is they can actually be found in many different settings. Okay, so for this episode, I'm actually going to use both the Pathfinder 2nd Edition monster manuals when I can, but I'm also going to use the regular monster manual for 5th Edition D&D as well. I'm going to give both some love. I'm making a little bit of a compromise <laughs> for this episode. I was only going to use the Pathfinder stuff and some of the other books, but I'm going to give both some love. You can find the Hydra in the Monster Manual for D&D 5th Edition on page 190. And also, the Hydra can be found in the Pathfinder Bestiary 1 on page 210. I'm not entirely sure if this is just the Pocket Edition for 210, but the pages may vary. In previous years, I read off stats. I don't think I'm going to do that this year. I'm just going to talk about the main points with these. The bright side is both of these creatures pretty much mirror each other pretty well in both manuals. So I can really just kind of give us quick synapses. They're both mostly just water-based creatures. They live in swamps for the most part, which it's easy to kind of build around. They can hold their breasts. They also have multi-detect because they have multiple heads. Uh, they also have regeneration of some kind so they can grow their heads back. And they also have the fire stuff to stop the heads from growing. The fun part about running hydras in your games is it's easy to bump up the difficulty. These guys are both roughly around the same CR. The Pathfinders is a little bit weaker at starting at CR6 while the 5th editions is around 8. You know what I'm saying with CR being bullshit though. But you can raise the difficulty with these by bumping up the health, bumping up the heads. There's obviously going to be variants of these Hydras. The Pathfinder Bestiary gives examples of some that are from like glaciers that are immune to cold, some that live near fire that can actually spew out lava and fire breath as well. So you got some different variants, at least throughout these I like to lean into more poison-based ones whenever I ran them in 5th edition. So your mileage can vary. It'd be kind of fun to make some storm hydras where their bite attacks actually electrocute their victims. That'd be a lot of fun. Another thing I would add, especially when running these things, is that I would allow your players to use their blood to do additional damage on their targets. Actually comes up in the labors of Heracles, where he dips his arrowheads in the Hydra's venom. So you can do that with a lot of different things with your players, at least at your table. There's a little bit more um, versatility and variety, at least to the combat. I guess while we're still in Greek mythology, might as well talk about Medusa while we're here. So I'm not particularly sure what book Medusa is in in fifth edition. I was able to find it on D&D Beyond. It might not actually be in a book. However, Medusa is actually in the Pathfinder second edition book on page 234. They're roughly around the same. The Medusa on D&D Beyond is uh, CR6. The Medusa on Pathfinder 2nd Edition is CR7. So, pretty much the same. So, the Medusa in Greek mythology was a Gorgon. Gorgons are completely different creatures in both Pathfinder and 5th Edition. So, we're just going to not talk about them. For those who aren't necessarily sure where Medusa's origin is, she's tied to another hero's journey. We're going to see a lot of those because that's kind of how mythology works. But her story is basically tied to Perseus's story. And he was tasked to slay Medusa. And the way he was able to accomplish this is because he was 
given a mirrored shield to avoid Medusa's petrifying gaze, because she could turn people into stone. Perseus actually kills her in her sleep, though, so just keep that in mind. Now, unlike some movie representations for Medusa, she doesn't actually have the lower body of a snake. She's basically a humanoid that has the hair of snakes, basically, and petrifying gaze. So the D&D Beyond version has... Pretty much everything we kind of just talked about. The petrifying gaze, the snake hairs. Now, upon closer inspection, because I just kind of glanced at the book when I first started this, Medusas are apparently a race in Pathfinder. So there's that. Hmm. So there is a, a little bit of a difference between the two. While the D&D 5th edition one is actually Medusa herself, the Pathfinder one, not so much. It is still equipped with pretty much all the same abilities, though, and traits. So that plus more offensive tactics, I guess. It's just, it's interesting. Now, how would I run one of these in like a tabletop game? Well, I would either have her have her own lair where she's protecting something, something super valuable. Otherwise, I would have her running events or something like I can just imagine her running a let's say a casino or some kind of coliseum and she's got these nice sunglasses on so she keeps herself from turning people to stone but if you piss her off she's going to turn you to stone so that's kind of cool she could be an artist too that'd be an interesting thing maybe she goes and buys people from the prisons and <laughs> turns them to stone and then works on them that's kind of neat it's kind of different i wouldn't necessarily use her as a villain i think she'd be a fun quest giver to be honest with you now i didn't go into this with the hydra because well we kind of did this in one of the episodes when we dealt with combat because i used the hydra as an example the bright side is medusa could easily be used as a in dungeon antagonist or she could just be a boss fight because her abilities are pretty dangerous and you could easily buff up her hit points you could equip her a little bit better too so she's more ready for them and honestly she could be pretty dangerous especially requiring a form of restoration to turn your friends out of being stone and the last creature we're going to talk about is the sphinx and i didn't realize it came from both egyptian mythology as well as greek mythology. Didn't know that. I thought it was only an Egyptian thing. But the Sphinx in Egyptian mythology served as the guardian figure and often placed at the entrance of temples or important tombs to protect them from intruders. Now, the Greek Sphinx is closer to what we see in our monster manuals. Both are pretty close, but the Sphinx in our monster manuals is closer to the Greek one versus the Egyptian one because they have wings mainly. The Greek Sphinx is also where we get the riddles the Sphinxes often ask that are placed in our monster manuals because the hero... I'm probably going to butcher this. I believe his name is pronounced Odepius, which is a tragic hero where the Sphinx makes him solve a riddle or he's going to be killed and ultimately leads to the Sphinx's demise because he solves the riddle correctly. And I'll even say the riddle here and I won't give you the answer. What has four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three legs in the evening? Now you can find the Sphinx's because there's multiple versions. You can find those on page 280 in the D&D 5th edition monster manual. Now for Pathfinder 2nd edition, there's 
three different versions of Sphinxes, which you can find those starting around 250, but we're going to be talking about the main one on the bottom of 250 in the Pocket Edition. Now, the Elder Sphinx, as well as the Andro Sphinx, line up pretty close to each other with CR. They're pretty close. And these characters kind of fit a more narrative focus. They actually come up throughout many different online campaigns that you've probably seen or heard from. I believe there's even one in Critical Role Season 1, if I remember right. It's been a long time. But they often can fit a role where they're directing players to try to help them solve a situation. Now, let's say you wanted to use one of these as a main antagonist because they are high enough level where they could fit this role. So if I was going to run a Sphinx as a main antagonist, what would I run it as? Maybe let's have it been digging into Forbidden Knowledge, something to bring back one of its loves, because it kind of gets depicted as there's two Sphinx, an Andro Sphinx, and a Gyna Sphinx, at least in 5th edition. You could probably do the same thing for Pathfinder as well. You could have it be attached to some kind of cursed prophecy. Maybe its life force is connected to the land itself and is drawing the life force out of everything around in the area, which is killing the area off. Maybe it's not aware that this is happening. That's just a couple things off the top of my head. Honestly, you could use these things a lot of different ways. I often, when I use Sphinxes, they mostly are just to direct the players when they need some help. No, it's not like when you pull over to the gas station and ask for directions, though that's kind of a funny image So when you think of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I misspoke earlier. It is in Pathfinder Bestiary 3, page 250. All right, friends. Well, that's all I have for tonight for this episode of Spooky Season. For those looking for a more ethereal thing, I'll try to have an episode at least started tonight so I can at least get you guys something some either sometime this week or maybe I'll post it on next Monday. So, outro stuff. This weekend was weird. This weekend was probably one of the busiest weekends I've had in a long time. I had a nice first date on Friday. Saturday, I had a work function, which I was there a lot longer than I thought I was going to be. Sunday, I drove to Portland, saw my friend run his marathon which he finished, which was awesome. Congratulations, Jen. And then I got stuck in traffic later that day trying to come back. The great thing about driving, especially when I was going to Portland and back, it definitely was pretty spooky. <laughs> I live in a heavily forested area with lots of fog, at least going to Portland. So it was interesting. I actually thought of more stuff for the ethereal episode than I did the actual mythology episode. Because apparently what I thought I knew about mythological creatures was some of a lot of them were folklore, unfortunately. By next episode, I should be able to tell you what the next episode of the Telor campaign is going to be aired. I don't actually remember off the top of my head when it was, so I'll keep you guys tuned next episode. And as a reminder, we have a Discord. And thank you so much for making it to the end of this episode, and I'll catch you on the next one.